Let's pray together and then we'll open God's word. Uh, Jesus, I just humbly thank you and praise you for this incredible body of believers who have been chasing after your heart for this city for so many years. Um, God, I, I know that your prayer, many, many prayers have been answered that this body has prayed, Lord, and yet still so many have not been answered, God, and we are continuing to chase after you, Lord, as you pursue the people of this city. And I just pray, God, a blessing and an anointing over this service, God. I just pray that you would cover my mouth, Lord, that only what you want to say would come out. God, that anything in my heart that's, that's not of you would not come out, Lord, and, and anything that is of you, Lord, your Holy Spirit, without you I can do nothing. But I pray that your Spirit would just speak truth through your word and reveal it to our hearts. We love you, Lord. We're a people who love you. We're hungry to meet with you and to be inspired by you alone, Jesus. So come and have your way in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, just want to say a little g'day, mate, from the land down under. Uh, we live in Australia. I've been there for like six years, and I still can't do the accent. So I'm really sorry. I was going to try to like preach in Australian, but uh, I just can't. You just get out of here. Um, Today is the beginning of what, you know, traditionally the church has called the Passion Week of Christ, right? It's the last week of Jesus' life, and its uh, entrance starts when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, if you remember the story, on a donkey. And we call that Sunday, which is this Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday. And I thought, um, interesting how that particular story would maybe fit into this uh, incredible message this morning about Jesus the ransom. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 21 verses 6 through 11 um, is where he finds sort of that Palm Sunday story. And Jesus had just told two of his disciples, you know, in, in a Jesus way, like the Jedi master, you know, go into this village and there's going to be a donkey and just tell the guy this and he's going to give you the donkey and then bring the donkey back. So they do. Everything happens like Jesus said. And it says, when the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed it is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This crowd that's there, it says it's a very large crowd. If you read, you know, the Gospels up until this point, like a large crowd was like 5,000 people, right, that Jesus fed um, with just a few fishes and, and, bread, and loaves of bread. So this is, a, a, this is a very large crowd. So assuming thousands and thousands of people are seeing Jesus coming in on a donkey. Now, up until this point in his, in his ministry, Jesus is still very mysterious. It's this man who speaks with authority and conviction and power, and they've seen him do miracle after miracle. He has proven that he's not only just powerful over sickness, where someone with leprosy has been healed miraculously, um, Powerful over the enemy where they've seen demoniacs set free, people who were in chains and in caves who are suddenly who are out of their mind suddenly just be completely right in their mind and the demons leave them. To even 
powerful enough to raise people from the dead with Lazarus, one of Jesus' close friends who he raises from the dead. And they're thinking, this guy has got to be the Messiah. The long-awaited one, the chosen one of God who is in the Jewish mind at this time. They're thinking, this is the one who's going to come and overthrow the ruler of that time, which was Rome, and establish himself as the ruler of the world. And the Jewish people, as his people, would be the rulers of the world. And so when they see Jesus approaching Jerusalem, which was, you know, the city, on the Passover feast, which would be the perfect time for the Messiah to reveal himself, they think, here comes our king. Finally, the moment is here. And you know that that crowd mentality of people excited and passionate They're taking off their cloaks and they're laying them on the ground. And they're cutting down palm branches. And those were signs of of honoring royalty as they would come in. But Jesus, unfortunately for them, was not coming to fulfill their agenda as they saw it. He wasn't coming to overthrow Rome. He wasn't coming to start a political uproar. He wasn't coming primarily to deal with their physical needs at all. He didn't come in on a horse. In Revelation, he will. That's how a king comes in. He came in on a donkey, which was a servant. And they had no idea what he was really there to do. He was coming in with a death warrant. To pay a ransom that could not be paid by humanity. Jesus wasn't coming in to be celebrated as king. He was coming in to die. And as we like, as a church, I think approach this week, I think it's timely and important to always come back to remembering the gospel. Remembering what Jesus has done for us. Remembering who we were apart from Christ. And what Jesus has done for us. And remembering where we're headed with Christ now. And so if, um, if you would with me take that journey. I want to tell this story that's not a, just a narrative. It's, it's historically accurate and true. Of the most beautiful ransom story that has ever existed. We look at Jesus, the ransom. Um, I want to first define that word. And then talk about sort of culturally what we think of with ransom and then what biblically ransom is dealing with. So a working sort of definition of ransom is this. A sum of money or other payment demanded or paid for the release of a prisoner. So it's almost like bail. Like you've been, something bad happens, someone is a prisoner and they want to be set free. But I think it, uh, in our, in our culture, I think in movie world, right, when you think of ransom, I immediately think of like Mel Gibson movies or some kind of action. Jackie Chan, you know, like what, just someone's going to die. Someone's, someone comes in and kidnaps or takes someone who's innocent, some bad, the bad guys, right? They take the innocent one and they hold them captive. They hold them with a ransom on their head. And the ransom is that sum of money that they're demanding or maybe it's um, something that they want the other party to do of the good guys, you know, the, the ones that haven't done anything wrong really, but the, the bad guys want the good guys to give them money and they'll release the one who is the captive, who is the prisoner. 
that falls short a little bit. And because when we're talking about a ransom, biblically, when it's used in the Old Testament, specifically in the law, the one who's caught isn't innocent at all. In fact, they're guilty. And when you look at ransom in, in, the, in the Old Testament law, it's usually someone's done something wrong. That's punishment is death. Always the punishment is death when it's dealing with ransom. Which I found quite interesting. So what's on the line for these prisoners or these captives or the ones who are being held is their very life. Like, if they don't get saved, if they don't get, if the ransom isn't paid, they're dead. So, biblically, if Jesus is our ransom, and if he's come to this this Jerusalem on that particular day to come in to be the one who would pay the ransom and be the ransom for us, that means means we have a small problem. Actually, we have several small but rather large problems. It means we've done something or many things wrong and that the punishment for those things is just like in the story or the movie, it's, it's death. Our first problem is, is sin. You're like, what have I done? What's so bad that I've done that would, that would cause me to have this uh, ransom note or this, this heavy thing on, on me? Well, it's It's sin. You remember the Old Testament story of Adam and Eve and, you know, you can kind of get caught up in the like, you know, a couple of naked people in a garden who ate an apple and then, you know, it's like a little fairy tale story. But so much more than that, it was a place carved out on the earth that God had created and the, the pinnacle of his creation, which was humanity, designed to have perfect relationship with God, was broken because that same man and woman that God created chose to disobey him due to a temptation that if they would disobey him and eat of this fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they could be like him. What Adam and Eve really fell for is they could be like God. They could be God in their own life and existence. Rather than he is the creator and they're the created, they could be on par. And that was the temptation that they fell to and pride destroyed humanity. And it passed on from generation to generation and a curse went upon uh, humanity for that where God was like, well, I can't let you live forever then. So the punishment for what you've done is death. It's separation from me. The relationship that we had, it can't exists anymore the way that it was because sin has now entered into the world. And look, it's not a fun thing to talk about. I I remember um, reading this passage in Romans. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. As a high school student where I was sort of first getting excited and, and like, you know, I think really wrestling with faith. I'd grown up in a Christian family, but I started to read the Bible because I wanted to read the Bible and I wanted to know what I really thought about this faith that my parents had taught me about and Christian school I grew up in had taught me about. I wanted to know, do I actually believe this stuff? And I remember reading Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of that chapter and thinking, man, that's a perfect picture of my 
world. But it says this, verse 18. I'm just going to, I want to read this and we can hopefully all take a big breath afterwards. But it says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity For the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to the shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Kind of heavy. And I'm sorry on one hand to read that, but I'm also able to say, look, I didn't write this. This is from God. And all I can say is as I look out at the world around us and we see the things that are happening, I see this picture everywhere in culture. And I think from a self-righteous standpoint, It's easy to be like, oh, yeah, it's totally happening out there. You know, there's murderers happening. You know, just happened today. Did you guys see in the news? Um, In Egypt, people were killed today because it's Palm Sunday. Followers of Christ. And I looked at the, you know, my public high school that I went to and, you know, at that time as a young person, and I just was like, you know what? I see this everywhere. But not only do I see it out there, I see it in me. I'm in this list. I am equally guilty of the list that is here in front of me. And when I read it, I'm immediately aware of my sinfulness and my need for some help. My need for a rescuer. And the feeling of imprisonment to 
to not only the culture that I live in, which is surrounding and constantly enticing me with sin, but of my own fleshly desire, which I don't need a culture to do it. I'll do it myself out of my own sinful makeup that I was born with. Not a lot of people want to confess that, right? Not a lot of people want to admit it, but I'll admit it. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm pointing like 10 fingers at myself. And when you read that and the hopelessness of it, it leaves you with just a heavy spirit. It gets a little bit heavier in the fact that the very, at the end, although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death. We think of death and hell as the scary part. Like, you know, the pitchforks and the demons and the guy with the red face at the horns. No, no, the worst part is the separation from the Father. The very thing that we were made to do, we can't do, which is have relationship with God. And death is that separation spiritually now between us and him. But eternally, for those who do not receive Jesus, it's an eternal separation from relationship with God. And that is hell. So the first problem is sin. The second problem is the cost of sin. The wages of sin. What happens with sin? It says for um, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. So what's the price? You're like, what does it cost? How do we get out of this mess? What, what's the freedom? What's the redemptive part of this? Hopefully there's a good story to this story. What's the ransom? What's the amount of money on my head to save my soul? And if you watch other religions in the world, they're trying to work this out in practical ways. Well, you just do more good than bad. You're sweet. You know, it's a Santa Claus theology. You know, were you on the naughty list this year, the good lists? And we're all kind of keeping track. Oh, you know, I helped the old lady across the street, but then I kind of totally cheated on my taxes and, whoops, shoot, now I'm not equal anymore. And so you got to do a bunch of more good things and bad. And almost every other religion in the world is completely based on this works mentality of, yep, we're broken, sort of. Things, but you can self-improve, you can self your way out of this one, self-help, self-improvement, just do this, you know, 10 steps to have a happy life. But what if you do all 10 steps and you're still miserable, chained up, prisoner to sin? The problem is there is no price that can cover it. Psalms 49, 7 through 15 says, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom of him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see the, that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain, their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve of their sayings. Like sheep, they are all destined for the grave and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. That's the problem. Sin is our problem. Next problem is 
the, the, the cost, the ransom, is not financial. It's not situational. It's like, okay, well, I'll go do this for you then, and then, then I'll be set free. You and I could never do anything to earn our salvation. And that is a bit of a, 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 a hopeless mess that we find ourselves in. So what is it? What is that thing that is made possible, that could, that could ever wash away our sins? The old song, you know, we sing still to this day of nothing but the blood of Jesus. When you look at the law, right, and the old covenant, it was a system of rules and regulations that they had to do and, 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 and ceremonial washings and cleansings and things like that to be made right with God or to have a temporary covering over sin. I mean, there's all the do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. If you do this, you're blessed. If you don't do this, you're cursed. The law was written, it says, so that we could just know what sin is and how far short we fall as humans from the perfection of God. It says it's like a mirror. Like when you look in the law, you see yourself and you go, oh no, I'm not going to make this one. And in the law, we find that that God's righteous decree is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's no remission for sin. That's interesting. It's the shedding of blood. There's something powerful about blood throughout Scripture and throughout history that it it carries something with it. Blood, if you think about it, right, it carries the oxygen. I mean, we can live for... um, almost a month without food. You can live for several days without water. But if you're blood and you don't have oxygen, you're dead because the life is in the blood. And so what God prophetically has said throughout ages and throughout time is that the only way that you and I will ever have a right standing with him and forgiveness is by one life exchanging itself for another. But not just any life. It has to be perfect blood. And that's another problem for us. Because nobody's perfect. As much as we'd like to think we are, none of us are. You're like, well, I'm a good person. You don't know me. Uh, on, the, on, the, you know, on the simple scale, like let's say you were a great person and all you ever did was maybe three bad things a day, right? Three sins. Maybe you like... Someone walked in the room and you judged them, or maybe you, um, she, maybe you thought a bad thought, or maybe you got in an argument, or you gossiped about someone. Just three sins, right? Everybody kind of does three sins. Probably a ton more than that. But let's say it was three. Over the course of a year, that's a thousand sins. Most of us are probably going to live to around 80, they think, or maybe more with medical science these days. So over the course of a lifetime, if you only did three sins a day, 80,000 sins. And you're like, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm like, we're not. In fact, all of our good works are like, says the Bible says, filthy rags to him. So we have this problem. We need perfect blood to cover our sin. And yet none of us can do it for ourselves. And so like that psalm, there's no price that can be paid by us. Money won't buy our freedom. You can't buy my freedom. I can't buy your freedom. 
Now we can all kind of take a little breath. Because the end of that psalm, verse 15 says, But God, God will redeem my life from the grave, and he will surely take me to himself. And John 3.16, everybody knows it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And God seeing us in captivity, completely chained and bound in our sin and death with no chance of freedom or escape, sent Jesus to pay our ransom and to be our ransom with his own life, with his own blood. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That old covenant, right, that we just talked about is now gone. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There's a promise from today's song. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I love this passage in, in Revelation. It's, again, this very amazing picture of uh, the prophetic nature of what Jesus did. But just before, uh, in, Re- in Revelations 5, 9 through 10, just before that, he says he sees one that looked like a lamb who looked like it had been slain. And it says, he says in verse 9, And they sang a new song. It was these four creatures. We don't know exactly what they looked like. And the elders who were surrounding this lamb who was slain, who is Jesus, And he says, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And 2,000 years ago, Just a few months ago, we celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas. And then now in this Easter season, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He lived for probably 30 to 33 years. Most of his ministry that we actually know about in the Gospels was about a three, three and a half year ministry. In three and a half years, this man completely turned the entire world upside down. Our calendar is based on him. God became a man. And the problem of our imperfect blood being able to cover over our sins, suddenly a new person enters the scene who in his nature was fully God, right? Philippians chapter 2. When Jesus became a man. He was fully God, so he was perfect, but he also was limited to our human body. He was fully man. It says he was tempted like you and I are tempted in every single sin that there is. This should be comforting. If you're feeling like you're struggling with something, just know something. Jesus was tempted with the same thing and yet was without sin. He overcame it. He didn't fall prey to it. His blood was pure. And back in that uh, Hebrew system, in that first covenant law, here's what would happen. I think this, there's, a, there's a, a biblical term that kind of clarifies this ransom concept. It's called propitiation. Can we all say that? Propitiation. It's like one of those Christianese words that you say all the time, like, yeah, Jesus, you're the propitiation. You're like, I don't know what that means, but I sound so spiritual when I say it. 
It's the atoning sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God forever. Propitiation actually comes back to the words, uh, to the usage of an atoning sacrifice. And in the, in the law, there was this one day in the Jewish calendar called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, you and your family would have to provide a lamb. Not any lamb would do. Had to be white, perfectly white. Had no blemishes whatsoever on it. That white lamb and its wool symbolized purity. And you would do is you would take this lamb, you would take it up to the high priest, the, the, the highest priest in the land. And you'd go to the tabernacle and you would take that lamb and he would literally put the lamb on this altar and slit its throat and its blood would pour out. And you would hold it down. Symbolizing that it should be you, not that lamb who was dying, to cover your sins. Later you would take that lamb's body and you would cook it for your family and eat it. Again, symbolic of the fact that that lamb took your place. The high priest would then take that blood into a part of the tabernacle that normal people were not allowed to go into. It was called the holy place. And we'd perform all these ceremonial things and cleansings. If, if he didn't do those right, he'd fall over dead. So bad, like they would tie a rope to their foot. And it would go out of the door to where all the normal people were. And it had jingle bells on his heel. So he would be stomping around because if he hadn't done the cleansing correctly on this day, he would drop dead and they would pull him out because they couldn't go in and get the body. This was such an important day. And the blood of this lamb would then go inside of the holy place was was a, a large curtain. It was thick. And that curtain separated even that part of humanity from the inner part, which was the Holy of Holies. And that's the place where God dwelt. And the Ark of the Covenant, on top of that, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones or any of those kind of things, there's these two kind of wing-looking angel creatures, and that's like this center part, which is called the mercy seat. And that blood would be poured out over the top of the mercy seat. And it would atone for or cover the sins of you and your family for that year. And the next year, it would happen again and again and again. And what we see as a picture and a limited covering, which was temporary, is a prophetic picture for the Lamb. The ultimate true Lamb, the perfect Lamb, Jesus, who would take away the sins of the world. And not a temporary covering for a year or a few days, but an eternal covering which would last through forever and ever and ever. Amen. So our ransom was not only paid for. I mean, Jesus is like, you know, he's the Jackie Chan in the thing, right? He's the guy who goes in and we're like chained up prisoners and he's the one who's there to save us but he's also his life is the one and rather than just pulling us out it's like he tell to the captor to the one that we are ransomed take my life in exchange for theirs and man just revisit this for a second it's so easy for us if we've grown up in the church and you hear the gospel over and over and over again to just be numb maybe to the gospel but jesus exchanged his life for ours. The perfect 
lamb. And God's wrath, when it says propitiation, it's the atoning sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God, the one that we just read about in Romans, the messed up world that the wrath of God is focused on and towards is now satisfied because it was turned onto Jesus and off of us. And now my death, that I should die, has already been done. Not by me, but by Christ. The death that you should die has not been done by you. It's by Jesus Christ. And he is freely giving that to anybody who would receive it. There's nothing greater. There is no better news. As heavy as sin is, this part of the gospel, the good gospel just means good news, is great. Christ died for our sins. And we can now be set free. In the eyes of a perfect God then with wrath towards us and we stand before this judge surely guilty of our sins. When, Jesus, when God now sees us for those who believe in Christ we are declared justified. Judiciary term, right? With the gavel when they smack that thing and they're like not guilty. And the person who is sweating in the, in the box goes, oh, I don't have to go to jail for the rest of my life, or I don't have to pay that fine, or I don't have to do this or that. It's the judge who's the ultimate authority says, not guilty. It's done. It can't even be brought up again. It's finished. And Jesus' work on the cross as he hung there, his last breath, has tell us die. It is finished. And the work of the cross, the work of this season of the church, as we remember what Jesus did on this week, he entered into Jerusalem to die, to finish the work that the Father had called him to. And you know who the ransom is paid to is the Father. The wrath of God is satisfied in Jesus. And now that relationship which was broken because of the sins of humanity, because of what Adam and Eve initially did, but we continue to do, has now been restored. And we can have an eternal relationship with God. I love Romans three twenty three through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. As we remember who Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. I want you to just remember, hopefully be encouraged. You know, in the movies, the, the, the family who have their loved one in captivity and they're just so distraught. I actually like that picture because it's a miracle. I don't understand why God would love us, but he does. And you're like, God can't love me. I've, I know what you're saying about the sin deal. I'm too messed up. He can't, he can't accept me. He can't want me. But when you see those, those stories of those families who would literally do anything, they would give everything that they own, all of their bank account, and even their own life. And in sometimes in some of those movies, they do. They, they go and they're shot so that their child or their person can be set free. We have, again, the most, the ultimate 
ransom story where God so loved us that he gave it all. He stepped out of glory. He stepped out of eternity and became a man. And died the most horrific death that you can die on this, on this planet. The crucifixion was not a simple way to go. It was awful. And he took our place and he took our death. And it was so bad, he looks up at his father and... Why have you forsaken me? His own father, forsake means to turn your back on someone. His own... The father couldn't even look upon his son. He was so filthy with my sin. And he did it because he loves you. And he did it because he loves me. And he did it because he wants to save us. And now it's almost like we're in still, you know, humanity is in this pit. And the, the, the sad part is the ransom has been paid. It's done. Jesus isn't going to get crucified again. It's done. One time was enough. One drop of his blood is powerful enough to save all the sins of the world. But his hand is extended to us. And he wants to pull us out of the chains and out of freedom. And the way that you are set free is by believing in him. By putting your faith in him. And stop trying to fix yourself. And start trusting that he fixed you. Stop trying to earn your salvation and just receive your salvation. It's really simple. The invitation in Romans 10.9 is so simple. He just says, look, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's God, the sovereign, the ruler, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Eternity is yours. Your, your sins are forgiven. You're set free. You no longer are in chains. And now you get to walk out the rest of our life here on earth and eternity in relationship with God. If you're here this morning and you've already accepted Jesus, I have just one reminder for you. Know who you are. Don't let the enemy rip you off. You're not worthless. You're everything to him. Sometimes we have this, you know, worm theology. I, you know, I think Martin Luther kind of coined that term of like, I'm just this rat bag. But you know what? Jesus redeemed you. Jesus paid your ransom. He gave his life for you. He loves you. Greater love has no one than this, that he gives up, lays down his life for a friend. And that picture was perfect in the cross. He lays down his life on the cross for us, takes our place, and dies. So know this morning that you're loved by God. You should know that you know that you know that the the creator of the universe thought about you when he made the universe. He knows everything. He knew we were going to fall, but he still went through with the plan because he knew and he loved us so much he was willing to lay down his own life so that we could be set free. Know who you are. Loved by God. 
Adopted now in his family. No, you're not a prisoner anymore. You're not a slave. Some of you guys are still walking around. You think your chains are on. It's like, hey, you know, put your hands up because you know what? They're free. You can shake them. And your legs, they're not chained to the wall anymore. You don't have to go back to the crap and roll around in the mud. You've been set free. Now be free. And lastly, this is it. Jesus doesn't just save us so that we can hold it all in and be like, kumbaya, thank you, God, you love me. It's I set you free because I'm passionate about Ventura. And he's passionate about California. Definitely California. He's passionate about the United States of America. He's passionate about India and Japan and China and Russia and Australia and the uttermost parts of the world. And he has saved us to go out and say, we know the truth. The ransom's been paid and anyone can have it. You just have to believe and you got to know Jesus. It started 2,000 years ago, and it's still going on today, and we got to get out of our seat and get into the car or your bike or your shoes and go to the streets and tell people because they're not going to know unless we tell them. So on, on this Easter, I want you to think about this. On this Palm Sunday when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, you and I have hindsight, 2020, perfect, clear vision. He didn't come to set himself up as a ruler over Rome. He came to set up a spiritual kingdom and to buy back souls who had been lost and imprisoned. And now he's calling us to go out and be co-partners with him and preach this message to the lost. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus Together, Lord, we say Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna in the highest. Save us in the highest, Lord. You are our Savior. You have paid our ransom and we are free, Jesus. I pray that this message would so permeate our identity in our hearts. We'd be so freed up, God. I just pray for freedom if anyone's struggling with addiction, Lord relational strife, financial worry, anxiety, depression, Lord. We just pray freedom over this place. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. God, we are free from the law. We are free from the bondage of sin and death. And Lord, we want to walk victoriously through this life. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. We remember you this day, this Palm Sunday. The great work that you began as you entered humbly through those gates. Love you, Jesus.